breaking kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry, the one, two, and three best friends that you didn't know you had, including our man, sweet Lou Kippelman out by the bay, getting ready to go to CAC. And I know he's going to have a good time here on episode 205. Uh, Barry and myself will be joined by friend of the show, second appearance by AWA historian, George Shire is Barry. We are going to be reviewing a match that, according to YouTube, took place in October of 1973 between, oh, Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch, the Texas Outlaws, taking on Don Morocco. Good Lord, Barry. This might be the oldest Don Morocco match I've ever seen on YouTube. And your old favorite, Billy Robinson from the studios in Minneapolis. Besides that, we're going to be, oh, let's see, Barry, we're going to be answering questions from a reader in Brazil. Brazil. Brazil, yes. Barry is going to be talking about some tornado drama that he recently went through with that damn Hurricane Ida. I will be talking about a book that I have recently read. Speaking of books, Barry, that's what they call a smooth segue, my friend. I understand we have a sponsor, Barry, who's got a book coming out. We do. So we have a new advertiser. It is our old friend, Ian Douglas. Ian, who is the author of the fantastic Bugsy McGraw book. Great book, by the way. Great book, also advertised on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Uh, Ian has been collaborating for the last year and a half with Brian Blair. Brian Blair, also the president of the Cauliflower Alley Club, the gentleman that also heads up the Legends Luncheons in Tampa. And a guy I think that is uh, that is trying to do well for a lot of professional wrestlers, guys that don't have a lot of money, uh, and he's always trying to help with that. But Ian is a uh, a tremendous author, as you mentioned that Bugsy McGraw book, and I'll I'll never forget it when when we sat down and we read the manuscript for the Bugsy McGraw book, and I read Bugsy's relationship with Dusty Rhodes. A little piece of kayfabe died for me that day, Jeff. <laughs> And exactly. I was like, what do you mean they weren't great friends? A little contentious. A little contentious. But even at this age, I still believe, you know, which is great. But we're real excited. He's got a 472 page autobiography of Brian Blair. And this is, you know, really interesting to me as well, because Brian is a guy that started off in the really the snake pit in Florida, which is, you know, he was training with Hiro Matsuda, Buddy Cole. Eddie Graham uh, had some great runs in uh, in Florida. Obviously, his probably most well-known for most people is one half of the Killer Bees with Jim Brenzel and the WWF. Uh, but Brian's done a lot uh, in his career, and we're real excited because this is letting people get on the ground floor of that book. So this is we're really what we're plugging right now, Jeff, is uh, donations, people that will pledge their support via a donation through Indiegogo. And we're going to be posting that link in our Facebook group. If you don't want to wait for that, go right on to Indiegogo and look for the book Truth Be Told. And that's B-E-E. See what he did there? I see uh, what he did really, there. Really interesting, too. A couple of things that I, I we wanted to talk about is that Brian is uh, Brian's known for his political career. And he's got some uh, some viewpoints that can be uh, polarizing at times. So people have asked Ian, and Ian is, again, Ian is a guy, Ian's got his master's degree from Northwestern. So we're talking this. That's, little, that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah, good. That, that, that's pretty good, right? It's, <laughs> right. it's not quite Notre Dame, but yeah. it's good. 
He's got he's got a degree in communication and media from the University of Michigan, a master's in. Oh, well, wait a minute! I'm not going to give him any credit for stinking Michigan. I'm sorry. All right, well, you need Northwestern. I'll give him credit. But he's got a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern, and he's wrapping up a second master's degree in business administration from the Quantic School of Business and Technology in D.C. So here is a guy that I, is, uh, I got an associate of arts degree from Broward Community College. I, just <laughs> like I bought some shit offline, Jeff, that says I've graduated. So uh, so, yeah, I can. But there is uh, an author. Uh, I shouldn't say she's an author. She's a journalist named Jamie Hemmings, and she writes a lot for Slam Wrestling. I believe she might even be their official book reviewer. She had this to say about the book. Now, she has seen a copy. I believe only. Three people have seen copies. You and I are not one of them, wow. which is why exactly, which is why we're plugging the Indiegogo website instead of talking about this. But in her review, she says the resulting autobiography is a welcome and rare balance of confidence and vulnerability. The book really allows the reader to get into the head and heart of Blair right from the opening pages where the catchy and suspenseful beginning alludes to a very personal and traumatic event in Blair's life that will unfold as these pages keep turning. Side note, this book was written prior to the, uh, the death of Brian's son, so I don't believe that will be it. For those readers who salivated hearing about pro-wrestling ribs and behind-the-curtain stories, you are definitely going to get your fill of saucy, scandalous moments. Saucy. I, I like I'm that. already saucy. like titillated off of that. The word saucy featuring a who's who of pro wrestlers, including, but not limited to Andre, the giant bruiser, Brody, Pat Patterson, Don Morocco and dusty Rhodes. Just a warning, Jeffrey, these stories will induce a variety of reactions from laughing out loud to being aghast to being appalled. And yes, at times even feeling like you need a long, hot, purifying shower even oh better there's plenty of sex oh my brawls and you'll never look at prune juice the same way thanks to the late paul orndorff sex, sex brawls and prune juice that'll be the header for that book thanks to paul orndorff and refreshingly for those ribs that clearly went too far and pushed the boundaries of basic human decency Blair seems to express genuine remorse when history is shown. Many of his peers aren't as keen to apologize for similar and worse actions. Now, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I'm on Indiegogo right now, pledging my support <laughs> based off of that. That is a great fucking review. We thank you, Jamie Hemmings uh, from Slam Wrestling. But look, Ian has done great work. I got the autobiography of Bugsy. There was a scrapbook, and I think you had to pledge a couple hundred dollars that people that got the scrapbook, fucking Greg Good being one, rave about it. And then he even did a, uh, a coloring book loosely based off of Bugsy as well. And I did pledge to that because then I got one of those really sweet masks, uh, the big O mask that he was offering at the time. But uh, with this, there are several different tiers. You can get the book, you can get the book autographed, you can get a Killer B autographed mask. Did you know that Brian Blair wrestled with a mask in the Mid-Atlantic region as the champ? I did not know that. Either I knew he, was, uh, he spent some time in Oklahoma. 
yes. uh, wrestling for Leroy well, McGurk. He was, and he was, I was going to say yes. And uh, so I and I knew he had the time, of course, in CWF and the WWF. I did not realize he was in Mid-Atlantic. Neither did I. And I was that was one that I was really uh, surprised to find out. I think it was a short stint. He was very young, but he does have replicas of those masks also. And uh, he'll be autographing and and offering those masks. But uh, as we just mentioned, he he was there was a great story out of the mid out of the Oklahoma region. And I, I have a feeling it's probably covered in this book. I don't know that for a fact, but he was married to the daughter of Leroy McGurk, which was Mike McGurk who was a former WWF ring announcer. I think the maybe the first female ring announcer they ever had. And I believe Brian might have even been the world junior champion at that time, or he held a title. And when he and Mike split up, he wound up leaving the territory. Go figure. Go, well, exactly. And I think I, I remember reading a headline saying, Brian Blair divorced from title, which I just thought was a great headline. So. Uh, I'm sure this will all be covered in the book. We know Ian Douglas, the guy, master's degree from Northwestern, Jeff. I I literally had to pay for my degree. This guy's getting double masters from different universities. This is a book you're going to want to read. I would like uh, to point out both and I, uh, both Barry and I, uh, high school graduates uh, at the very least. Successfully. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, man- I, man- I managed to uh, score a, uh, I believe, a right. B plus on my government exam, which <laughs> brought me into the D plus category in that there class. You go. And uh, beloved Belleville East High School, uh, the fighting Lancers of Belleville, Illinois. So uh, let me just say <laughs> that for those of you out there that are not Patreon subscribers, yes, here it comes what? again this week. If you're not going to support Barry and I in our Patreon efforts, here we have one of our own brother shippers who is involved in a biography of a professional wrestler. Support your fellow brother shipper. Uh, Ian is a good guy. He's uh, he supported us before with advertising with the Bugsy McGraw book. So by God, if you're like F you, Bowdrin and Barry, I can't believe you would say that, but if you did, at least support Ian. Support the people that support our show and our efforts. And so Ian, uh, we wish you well in your efforts and Brian. Uh, so uh, go out there and uh, support this uh, fine book. So now Barry, uh, why don't we go to our interview with our old friend, George Shire. So Barry, we are joined once again by official friend of the show, AWA historian. A- am I correct Barry in saying the preeminent AWA historian, George Shire? And if you don't say that, George Shia will come to your house and lay a whipping on you, Jeff. <laughs> so <laughs> butt left and right. Left so, and George, right. thank you so much for joining us. Well, it is a pleasure. And boy, you guys are just too nice saying such things. <laughs> uh, preeminent. That's not even a word that's in my vocabulary, but I'll take it. So, okay. We've invited <laughs> George, uh, George on here with us today. We're going to discuss a match that I got to be honest, folks, I found this uh, completely randomly. I was looking at some old school AWA stuff on uh, YouTube. Now, uh, George has told me the date that's on the YouTube uh, video is October 6th, 1973 in the studios in Minneapolis. As we have those Texas outlaws, oh, a very, a very young Dick Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes taking on a very young Don Morocco and Oh, Barry, a man that's near and dear to your heart. It's Billy Robinson. But, Barry, before you start talking about your love for all things Billy Robinson, George has told us this was not the actual date of this match. 
which is quite frankly why we have George on here to give us this kind of info. George, tell the good folks, what was the actual date this match took place? The actual date was December 2nd of 1972, and it coincides with Dick Murdoch actually coming into the AWA because just previously to this, Dusty Rhodes had been teaming with pretty boy Larry Henning. And Larry was going to go out a little bit on his own, chasing that spindly-legged, bald-headed Vern Gagne, as he would call him. And Murdoch came in, the AWA brought him in, and they hooked him up right away with Dusty. And you can see they were very young. Uh, it was, you know, I think a year before that or so, a year and a half before that, they were in Detroit as the uh, Detroit version of the World Tag Team Champions for um, Ed Fogg. Had a, a long program with Ben Justice and the Stomper. I remember that from the old magazines. Yes, yes. they sure did. Yeah. Um, so let me just ask you, you've had a chance to watch this match. Uh, first of all, let's put some stuff into context here. Morocco and Robinson, were, were they just thrown together for this match on TV? Had they been teaming at all? No, in fact, that's another story. Robinson had been here now for about a year in the AWA. Don Morocco had been in for a while, too, very young. And Robinson had been working when he worked tag matches with guys like Dr. X, who was Dick, Dick Byer, the Destroyer. Uh, with Dr. X, and he teamed with uh, Wahoo McDaniel and a couple of guys, even the Crusher. And Morocco and him got together. Basically, they were looking for new challengers, babyface challengers, eventually for Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle, who now were the champs for almost a year. They had won the title in January of 72. And so they were looking for, you know, having a babyface team. And it kind of, it kind of was a natural uh, to put Morocco and Robinson together because they, at that point, they were kind of the, probably the premier two baby faces outside of Vern and the Crusher who were, you know, perpetual baby faces in the AWA. So that's how it came about. Yeah. So Barry, your man, Billy Robinson, uh, in the prime of his years here, Bear. Yeah, he looks and he looks great in this match, too. And the truth is, all four of these guys really look good. Morocco, you can clearly tell, is still in the the formation of his career. But, George, I uh, more than just saying, look, I love this match. How could I not love this match? This is exactly right up my wheelhouse. I actually have a few questions for you, George. Uh, looking at this match, the referee, very young Doug Summers even prettier yeah. in this match than in a lot of other matches. <laughs> he wasn't right. quite a pretty boy yet. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. And then I, I look in the crowd, George, and it, it, there's because they pan to the crowd. What I like, it's a smaller, you know, what is there, maybe 100 people in there, Max? Yeah, usually about 75 to 100. And the studio that you see on, on the TV is pretty much the size of the actual studio. Um, in this particular one, it's kind of rare because you get to see that side of the ring where both Robinson and Morocco are eventually thrown out and they're attending to them. Um, that's a side of the, the studio that the actual TV viewer would never see in most cases. Right. You usually only got the L-shaped audience, the stands there. 
and then the, the, the ring. So that was kind of a, a rare shot. Yeah, and that's and I like the fact that they went out there twice. Also, it was interesting that they went out there twice. Also, looking at the the fans in attendance that day, the fans that were in the crowd, you had several that were wearing sunglasses, and I could swear that I saw Ronnie Millsap in the third row. Any true to the rumor was Ronnie Millsap an AWA fan? <laughs> it wasn't Ronnie Millsap. Um, that's that's a very that. random question. You, you had to, Jeff, if you go back, the first things I'm picking up I, in my head, I'm going, why are there two guys wearing deep, dark sunglasses? And then they pan at one point to the Iron Sheik, who's in the first row, who looks like a looks like a loan shark, essentially, is you got this nervous guy in a suit sitting in the front row. Uh, he just looks great. But hey. George, we had on Greg Gagne, which I think you're aware, we had Greg Gagne on with us a couple of weeks ago on our Patreon episode, and Greg was an astounding, astounding storyteller and super friendly guy, but I I asked him a question, and a lot of the stories when it came to Billy Robinson, and you, we've discussed Billy Robinson, you and I have, I think we even did it on air at one point, Uh, but I asked Greg, I said, Greg, a couple of rumors about why Billy never won the AWA title. And I presented them. And the first one was that there was a fear, which a lot of people, you know, state this as fact, uh, that Billy was never given the title because if he decided he didn't want to lose it, there was nobody around to take it off of him. Greg dispelled that. And Greg said, no, that really wasn't the case. The second reason I believe Greg did agree with and that Billy was one of those guys that could possibly be having the best matches on the card, but wasn't really a guy that was drawing people into the arena. What's your take on that? Well, first, I want to say that Greg Gagne is positively one of my my really best wrestler friends. And I can tell you for a fact that I I probably talked to him. In fact, I commented to my wife this morning. I said, you know what? I didn't talk to Greg Gagne last week. And it's the first week in a row uh, in just ages, ages, and ages that I have not talked to him. Um, But we usually talk two, maybe three, sometimes even four times a week. And we talk about a lot of things. I will tell you this about Greg. Greg is phenomenal with talking to people that he, that he totally trusts. So he will talk to me about anything, but sometimes if he doesn't know a person well or well enough, he tends to still go into that little shell. And I say this with all respect to him, but he goes into this little shell where he's not going to really say, what is the truth or how something went down. And and that's kind of sad because I've reminded Greg over and over that Greg it's over, you know, no longer it's, you don't have to case Abe anymore. People are smart and that sort of thing. So the answers that he gave you, the, the truth of the matter is, is that Billy wasn't going to get the title because for the very reason that Billy Robinson and I'll share a Bachwinkle story with you to back to back this up. Billy Robinson was one of those individuals who was so good at at just 
I mean, and Barry, you're probably loving this because he's one of your favorites. But Billy was good. And Billy wanted every opponent to totally respect him. And Billy liked to call the matches a lot. And so if he was in the ring with somebody that he just didn't feel was his caliber or at, you know, doing the best they can or was trying to show him up or, or just didn't respect him. Billy would make a fool out of the poor guy. And, and this was admitted, you know, Nick Bockwinkle told me this. He said, Billy was one of those guys that whenever Billy and I were to wrestle. And I'll tell you this, Nick and Billy, probably during the 15 years that they were both together in the AWA, I swear to God, in tag matches and singles matches, they must have wrestled 500 times. And in every match, Nick told me, he said, I learned early on that before the match, I go to, I go to Billy and I say, Billy, what do you want to do tonight? What do you want us to do? And Billy would just go with it, you know, tell him what he wanted. And he said, he and I had great matches. And that's how they had their respect for one another. Now, Nick got through with that, did it that way because he knew then that he could have a great match with Billy and Billy would do whatever he wanted. So I think that's the thing with Billy Robinson. He, he just had, there, there were wrestlers out there that he wasn't going to put over. And Vern legitimately was afraid of that because Billy was one of those guys that if it came to the night where or a period of time where he says, I want you to put, we're going to put the title on Joe Schmo. And if Billy didn't like Joe Schmo, it wasn't going to happen. And that's a fact of the matter. Now, whether or not Billy was a draw, uh, that's another side of the story. Billy headlined AWA main events the entire time he was here. And I think we're all smart enough as fans to know that it always takes a good heel and a good baby face to draw those fans. And Billy wouldn't have been in those top matches if he wasn't drawing. So I don't think Greg was, you know, kind of giving to the square on that. So let me ask you before, before I get to my next question, uh, Barry, I, I, I want to mention, you know, you, you talked about seeing uh, the Iron Sheik, uh, and uh, the referee being Doug Summers. I don't know. Uh, this has nothing to do with the match in question here, but later in the video, uh, later in the the TV show, did you catch who the other referee was? Oh, I didn't. Who was it? A young Paul Pershman. Oh. Yes, the playboy Buddy Rose as a young ref. Now, of course, I can tell you out, out there uh, in the Pacific Northwest, Kevin Orcutt's ears are popping up. Uh, so <laughs> Kevin's going to have to watch this just to see a young yes. a young Buddy Rose as referee. So, George, my next question is, uh, you know, this match showcases just how good, uh, and, and I'm not saying that he wasn't good later on in his career, but as a team, Dusty and Dick Murdoch, wow, they were just bumping their asses off and just a fantastic heel team, yet they never got to that AWA title. Is it Was it sort of a glass ceilings because, you know, Bockwinkle and Stevens were just so good? Well, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, there, there's something, we got to back up about a year here, okay? Um, and actually, it's 50 years ago. I, I posted this on, on, on my wrestling uh, Facebook page here about a, a week or so back. 
but it's 50 years ago in July, 1971, where Vern Gagne, Nick Bockwinkel had been in the AWA for about six months. And when he came into the AWA, Vern was starting to slow down with his title defenses, and he had decided he was going to put the title on Nick Bockwinkel. It would be sometime in 71, maybe early 72. That's what the plan of attack was. I mean, that wasn't what anybody outside the outside of the AWA knew, but this was the inside stuff of it. In July of 71, they, they put on a battle of the unbeaten is the way it was announced for July 24th. And it was supposed to be Hercules Cortez and Nick Bockwinkle with the winner to get a title shot with Vern. Now, it would have been a title shot and it wouldn't have been immediate title victory, but there'd have been a program between Nick and Vern that would have run for a while. They would have milked it. And eventually Nick was going to take the title. But the morning of the 24th of July, that was the, the morning that coming back from Winnipeg, Canada, Hercules Cortez was killed in the car accident driving with him and Red Bastien from the night before his matches in Winnipeg. So on the day of the match at the Minneapolis Auditorium, that was also a live broadcast that evening for All-Star Wrestling before the card. We had it unique because the AWA wrestling program would usually run from 6 to 7.30 live on Saturday nights of the nights that they were hosting the card. And then they would tape shows in between before the next card. So on the live night, they got to go on TV and they have to announce at 6 o'clock you know, the sorrow, the sadness, we lost Hercules Cortez. Well, of course, they've got a main event and a card, you know, an hour and a half away. The matches, the live matches, the cards used to start at announced time of nine o'clock. Like all pro, pro cards, it was probably 9.30 when they got off the ground, but nine o'clock. So Vern Gagne came out on the live show and he said that under these circumstances, We've got a card here tonight, and I will wrestle Nick Bockwinkle, but I won't put the title on the line. And that was going to be the, the quick main event. Well, on that same card, it was Ray Stevens' AWA debut in a singles match, and he was going to wrestle Red Bastine on the card. Now, Bastine also did not wrestle that night because he had injured his leg in the car accident. And he took a, a week or two off. So they had a, a substitute for Ray. But during the match of Nick and Vern, Ray Stevens, who on TV that night, making his debut, and he's coming from the Cow Palace, San Francisco, for the past decade. Everybody knows what a, what a powerhouse draw he was out there. He comes on TV, and he said that for the past decade, and this would be a great interview to hear, you know, today if it were out there. But he says, for the past decade, I've been chasing Vern Gagne, and he hasn't come to California. So I'm here now in his backyard, and I want him. <laughs> 
So during the Nick and Vern match, they have Ray come out and sit at a ringside chair claiming that he is there to scout the champion. He's looking at Vern guys. Nick and Vern have this great match. During the course of the match, Vern gets the sleeper hold, which was his patented finishing hold. He gets it on Nick. The referee was Aldo Bogney. There's an old name for you. The referee Aldo Bogney is calling for Nick. Do you want to give or watching Nick to see if he's going out? And Nick is starting to sag a little bit. Ray Stevens jumps up on the ring apron, yelling to the referee that it's a chokehold. Well, Vern lets Nick go, punches Ray off the ring apron. And Ray goes to the floor. Well, in the meantime, Bachwinkle recovers enough to come up behind Vern, roll him up in a cradle. The referee counts one, two, three, bingo, quick. And Nick has his non-title victory. So that's where this thing first started. Then the following week, Ray Stevens is out on TV. And he says that uh, Ganya was trying to get a cheap victory over, over Bachwinkle. Bachwinkle came out and he said, you know what? You're right, Ray. He's out here trying to get a quick win over me with a chokehold. Thank you very much for coming in. What they realized they needed to do was new problem. Cortez, Bastine were at the time the AWA tag team champion. So now they've got to come up with new tag team champion. And the AWA said, Again, they're all working this on the fly at this point. I mean, Cortez dying certainly wasn't in any of the program plans here. So Bastine is said that he can pick a partner and retain the title. Vern went to the Crusher and asked Crusher to step in. Now, the reason he did this was because he needed to have a top draw to match Cortez, who was extremely popular with Bastine, and they needed to keep the progression going. Crusher said, I'll do it, but I don't want to hold this title for a long time. Crusher never wanted to hold the championship, tag team or singles, because it interfered with his impromptu vacations that he wanted to take, and they'd injure him for a little bit, and he'd be gone. And he wanted to be able to come and go. And he didn't need the title because he drew so well without it. So it made sense. So he told Bernie, do it. So the new plan went in. Here we had Nick and Ray. Bernie said, you know what? These guys are working good together, kind of as mutual enemies against me all of a sudden. They made a good team. So six months, well, this was in August when this was taking place about the tag team title. By the time they got to January, of 72, Crusher and Bastine dropped the title to Nick and Ray. Now, immediately, Nick and Ray were over the top good draw. All Vern did was just slow down his wrestling. He didn't defend the title as much. Um, he was probably down to just a few times a year, so he didn't have any urgency, and he was drawing well with Nick and Ray. Then he had the outlaws that we're talking about here. 
He had Larry Hennig and Dusty Rhodes for a while together. He had, uh, you know, a, a few other teams. And that's where Robinson and Morocco come in, where, again, we got to have a new team. Bastine had decided to take off and go back to Texas. If you check the uh, wrestling results, you'll see that right after he lost the title with Crusher, he was in Texas main eventing, and he had a home down there at the time. And so he had decided to just go home and take some time away, wrestle when he wanted to. So that's how the, the title kind of, or the whole history was changed with Cortez passing. And with the Rhodes and Murdoch thing not getting the title, yeah, they would have been a great team to get it had we not had uh, Nick and Ray. I mean, Nick and Ray were so good. Yeah, I was going to say the they, they were such they were such a great team, but unfortunately they had an even greater team blocking their way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that could be entirely believable. You know, it's the old thing, and I think we could look at any territory around the country back in those days. There would always be a tag team that you could look at and say, they should have had a run with the title of a title, but they didn't get it. And then if you look at the reasons why, you recognize that it was because maybe there was another team that was drawing well or they just didn't need to put it on them. I remember when the Vashon brothers were the AWA tag champs, Vern was drawing for close to three years, two and a half years, so well with the Vashon that it would have been great had Billy Red Lions and Red Bastine, who were, you had to see those two together as a babyface team. They were so phenomenal. I've never been a babyface tag team fan, but those two guys together, they just, they had you on the end of your seat. And they should have beaten the Vashans, but Vern was drawing well with the Vashans and didn't need to do it. And so that's how that stuff was done. I mean, it's, they, they were in the wrong place, Rhodes and Murdoch. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Gotcha. So it, it, what I liked about this uh, in this match, too, and just in getting back to this match, was the fact that everybody, it was a very evenly paced matchup. It, it, this wasn't any sort of squash. This was the kind of match that you would see in an arena, uh, all main eventers with it. The only thing I think I can take, uh, and this is something I'm going to, I actually want to ask you about, George, is Roger Kent. Is it, was it Roger Kent that was doing the announcing? Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So there was a couple of things that he said. Uh, it, there was the first, the first fall Morocco wins with an abdominal stretch and Roger Kent, uh, creatively comes up with the name body stretcher, uh, which I like. So uh, he does it a couple. Yeah, there was a couple of other things that he did. Uh, even when uh, Robinson caught that suplex on the concrete, you know, and, and that that was the brain buster, which was a Murdoch specialty taught to him by Killer Carl Cox. Uh, you know, he's just calling it a suplex on the outside. How what without I'm not overly familiar, but how was Roger Kent on a weekly basis? The Roger Kent you heard on there was probably the Roger Kent that you would hear on most of his play-by-play. -play. He had been with All-Star Wrestling since 1962. And in, in the Twin City, St. Paul, Minneapolis market, which basically was the headquarters of the AWA, he was a uh, former radio DJ, TV. He hosted a TV show for, for many years. 
uh, very well known. And he came to work with Marty O'Neill, who at that point was our, our main TV uh, host and announcer. And Roger was pretty much the guy at ringside up until, boy, I'll tell you, all through the 70s and then later on when uh, Rod Trongard and some of those came in. So I want to ask you guys something. Sure. How dare I don't you? Know. Oh, please. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you're planning to ask this question, but I want to throw it out there and maybe I can catch you. At the end of the match, when Billy Robinson is on the floor, did any of you guys pick up on the crew that was attending to Billy Robinson? Absolutely. Ken Patera, uh, Sergeant Slaughter, the aforementioned Iron Sheik, they were all there. But Roger Kent also Jim comes Brunzel. up. Who was it? Jim Brunzel. Jim yep. Brunzel was yep. it. Yeah. Okay. Ro- That's Roger what I Kent wanted to had, He had one of the best lines ever. So uh, it, Murdoch does. He does a great brain buster on Billy Robinson on the concrete floor outside. And Robinson sells it like he's been shot. It's a million-dollar sell mm-hmm. job. Roger Kent, though, comes forth with a line that I don't think I've ever heard on a wrestling <laughs> uh, broadcast before. Roger Kent saying, let's we're, we need to make sure that Billy Robinson is breathing all right. Uh, and then he hasn't swallowed his tongue. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else catch that? Yeah, he's hemorrhaging. He's hemorrhaging. He's yeah. swallowing his tongue in a spoon. <laughs> well, they, they, may, they may have uh, went a little bit overboard with the dramatics, but if you look at the way Billy was laying there, wait a minute, wait that a minute. Is you're saying that people go overboard and are dramatic in professional wrestling? What? Is that what you're I trying mean, to say, George? How dare me? How dare me, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was played when I looked after I talked to Barry briefly and he said that you guys wanted to discuss this. I did look up the match. And of course, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was even surprised that it was out there. So I was happy to look at it. But it's um, it's probably as vintage AWA as you can get. And the thing that's very interesting to me, and I don't know how much of a Don Morocco you guys fan, you guys were uh fan, you guys were, but. I look at Don Morocco as he progressed throughout his career and he had a good run down in Florida and he was in the WWF. He was in Texas and he was out in California. Uh, Morocco, when he was here in the AWA, if you look at the talent around that man, to me, there was just no way that Don Morocco, unless he just didn't want to, there was no way that he couldn't become a mega star because he had Bachwinkle, he had Stevens, he had Rhodes, he had Murdoch, he had Hennig, he had Koloff, he had Big K, he had uh, Vern Gagne, he had the Crusher, he had Wahoo McDaniel, he had Cowboy Bill Watts. I mean, and, and, and that's just some of them. He had, there's no way that man couldn't learn from all of this talent. And then to move on to all the other territories with the other great talent that was available to him you know, like down in Florida with all the talent that was going through there in the 70s and that was there. So Don Morocco, I think, was probably privy to one of the greatest educations of any wrestler of the 70s when you were young like he was at the time. And Barry, of course, uh, 
What was Don Morocco most famous for in CWF as a young wrestler? Well, so Don Morocco was the guy that he was the first guy that we're ever aware of for reversing the Jack Briscoe figure. Correct. Four. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what I was referencing. So, yeah, he definitely uh, yeah, Don Morocco as a young wrestler when he would do like the surfboard where he would uh, grab the leg and then put his foot on the guy's thigh and then snap it back. That was like a big baby face move. And he started to grow his hair out. And he was, a lot of comparisons in CWF uh, to Jack Briscoe, Barry. Absolutely, too. Absolutely. And that, that was part of it, too. And when he reversed and the, the story goes, actually, Morocco wasn't even scheduled to be Briscoe's opponent that night. I forget if it was Bill Watts and I believe it was Bill Watts, but somebody got injured in an angle. They put Morocco in its babyface versus babyface. And the comparison was similar build, similar hairstyle and even a similar style of wrestling. But, George, I have a question for you, and, and maybe you can either verify or debunk this. But my assumption with Don Morocco is how did Don Morocco wind up in the AWA? You had a Hawaiian guy, guy that basically uh, he was a champion surfer, lived on the beach. Uh, and all of a sudden we're, we're taking him and we're putting him in one of the coldest places in the country. Was he discovered by AWA talent working in Hawaii? Yes. He was when Vern Ganya. And Nick Bockwinkel, Ray Stevens, you know, they would take in the late late 71 into the 72, 73 seasons, they would take vacations down there into Hawaii and they would wrestle. And that's where basically Vern saw Billy for the first time, but it was the destroyer. Well, Dick Byer wrestling as the destroyer that told Vern, he said, this is the guy you want to bring back with to the AWA. And that was Billy. And so Billy came back and Robert or Morocco had been down there as well. And Vern, there's some clippings out there. In fact, I may even have them um, where Vern is on the same couple of cards that Morocco was on. And he brought Morocco in. I, I have to tell you that I would, without looking, I don't know how long Don Morocco had been wrestling up to that point. I know it wasn't that long of a period of time. And when he came in, like all young wrestlers, you know, you could see that he was still, I hate to use the word clumsy, but, you know, you just didn't have that coordination and it just improved quickly over the course of his couple of years here in the AWA. And again, I always attribute that to the fact that he had so much talent to work with. When he first came in, he was, he was um, aligned with first in a tag team match, tag team, few tag team matches with Ramon Torres. And Torres was a, a many, many years veteran at this point in time. And they wrestled some matches. Then they brought in Lonnie Kialoha to be Don's partner. And that was Jimmy Snuka. And Kialoha was here for a while. And it looked like that was going to be the babyface team that they were going to be pushing towards Nick and Ray, Vern and Kilo or Snuka, they had a, a behind the scenes tip and Snuka huffed out and was gone. But that was the original plan. And I think that's probably where it eventually morphed into, you know, Robinson maybe is the better choice because now you kind of have the veteran and the rookie and they can work together. And if you look at the match on TV, I mean, you should have seen their their live matches. 
uh, you got a TV match, but look at their live matches. And I saw them wrestle Nick and Ray at the St. Paul Auditorium, and it was a hell of a match. I mean, the four of them worked very well together. So, okay, well, George, once again, we're going to post this match in our uh, our Facebook group, Breaking Cape with Bowdrin and Barry. An excellent, excellent match. You know, Barry, I was thinking uh, earlier today, you know, we had uh, the Valter match that took place like two weeks ago. Now we're going back almost 50 years because we're nothing if not, you know, like uh, givers. And we like to give the folks a little bit of everything. And so, George, we want to thank you so much for joining us, giving us a little old school AWA history. Uh, you mentioned your Facebook group. Why don't you tell the uh, the good folks and the listeners uh, where they can find you on Facebook and your group and uh, maybe come take a look at some of the great stuff from the AWA that you post. I have a, well, it's not just AWA, but of course there is a lot of it on my Facebook page. Uh, it's called George Shire's Wrestling Time Machine. And you have to remember when you type in Shire to make it S-E-H-I-R-E, or else you'll not find it. But George no, relation, no relation to Roy. Well, according to Vern Gagne, I was, but <laughs> and Greg and Greg Gagne still calls me Roy once in a while, so I could <laughs> take that to be with my uncle. How's that? <laughs> there you go. So, well, listen, George. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you so well, much you know, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Anytime, guys. I totally appreciate it. Love old wrestling. Thank you, George. Thank you. So, Barry, real quick, I wanted to mention a few of the people in our group that are currently, I'm going to say, going through some uh, some struggles. Uh, I want to mention our friend uh, Drew Samuels, who is uh, going through a little bit of a hard time, and we want him to know that we're thinking about him. Joe Christie, uh, who I spoke to yesterday, uh, is going through, a, I'm just going to say, a struggle that I went through uh, last year. So I definitely know what he's going through. And also uh, one of our moderators, Mark uh, Hurtwick, who uh, who lost his father recently. And uh, so those three guys, uh, I know, Barry, that you join me in, in telling those three guys that we're thinking about them uh, and that the brothership has your back, guys. Yeah, three three good guys, too. It's, uh, you know, Drew is a guy that uh, as his marriage was ending, so was mine. And uh, we were able to bond over the massive changes coming to our lives. and. Uh, and I feel for Drew a little bit because I think our circumstances are different. Uh, he also has younger children, which can't be easy. So, uh, you know, as I've told Drew and at any point, he can call me. He's got my number. He can reach out. Uh, this is tough, you know, uh, without a doubt. Mark is a, uh, a tremendous guy. Mark is, uh, you know, obviously one of the moderators or admins in our Facebook group. Always there, power of positivity, lost his father at 87. They knew that this was coming, but Jeff, uh, this never makes it easier. As somebody that, you know, I lost my dad and uh, he was on death's door for, you know, I don't even know how long. And still when that phone rings and you get that message, it's you're still never prepared. And Joe Christie, you know, where would we be without Joe Christie and the shit jokes? Because uh, it would be I a shit free world without Joe Christie. It would be. <laughs> it would be. I told a couple of shit stories about four years ago, Jeff, and they're still on the topic and still happening. So, uh, so yeah. Well, we well would you go as far just to end this on a light <laughs> note to say that Joe is a man that loves his shit. Joe loves his shit and Joe loves pointing out how deep I am in shit. 
When, so, when Joe Christie has a bowel movement, does he turn, <laughs> look at the result in the toilet and say, Barry Rose, I did you proud? Yes, I, I would. I don't know. I've never. Thank God I've never gotten those messages or texts uh, from Joe. <laughs> Could you imagine? There's going to be I'm a photo to, coming. I'm out to dinner with somebody. I'm having a nice night. And all of a sudden there's Joe on the bowls saying, thinking <laughs> of you, brother. Yeah, no, hasn't happened yet. He's Jeff. got a little bloodshot eye because he sprained <laughs> a little bit, you know. So uh, anyway, listen, I also want to mention uh, a special thank you uh, to uh to our friend Rick Nathan, Rick put together for the Breaking K Fabe with Badron and Barry group, uh, not one Barry, but two different fantasy football leagues. Uh, I participated in it yesterday, had a chance to talk uh, with uh, about four or five guys along with Rick and Joe and uh, got him and Adam Dumau was there and a few other guys. It was just a good time uh, as we were participating in a fantasy football draft and guys just busting each other's balls about football. It's a it's a great time, and uh, Rick, we really want to say, and Rick, having to be the executive, uh, the the commissioner uh, of two different drafts going on simultaneously, Barry, I'm like, I'm lucky if I know how to pull up fucking Wi-Fi, and this guy's running two different drafts and two different. Uh, it's just pretty amazing. So I want to say thank you to Rick, a good guy, Bear. Yeah, he's a great guy. Rick and I, uh, we had dinner with his lovely wife. He married up, by the way. So well, Rick will always have my respect. But beautiful wife, highly intelligent. Uh, had a great dinner and had some dessert and Wait, was able to spend some time with him. Are you saying the wife is, is highly intelligent or Rick is highly intelligent? Uh, the wife. The wife okay. is highly intelligent. Rick, Rick's, Rick seems like, you know, like he's got it going on too. But yeah, his wife on the spot took me to a great place out in Los Angeles. Roscoe's. I think it's Roscoe's House of Waffles and Fried Chicken. Chicken and Waffles, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But I, I forget exactly what the, but I know it's Roscoe something. And I got to tell you, that was some of the best fried chicken and waffles, if not the best that I've ever had by far. Okay. Now want to mention Barry that you and I, and you don't know my part of this, you and I have okay. had a little, little drama in our lives recently. Uh, I understand well, Mr. Rose, you may have encountered some bad weather recently with hurricane Ida coming through. Why don't you tell yeah, the folks about that? It was pretty, I'll tell you right now, it was, it was really fucked up. And uh, so I'm a weather junkie to some degree. I'm one of those people that in a hurricane, I, I try to take in as much as I can. I, I like to walk outside <laughs> during a hurricane. I like I like to see before and after. I You know, there's something about it. Uh, you go which, walking around looking for down power lines, do you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I And I, I usually hold like a golf club high up in the air. Exactly. These are little things I do. But uh, this was so. The, you know, I went through, we talked about Hurricane Andrew. I've been through Hurricane Andrew. I went through three hurricanes in Orlando in the year 2004. Uh, was the first time in over 120 years that three hurricanes had hit the city. I was working for Universal at that point, and the theme park was actually shut down, which in those days, the theme parks never shut down. With COVID now, they do shut down, but I've been through uh, hurricanes. I've been multiple. I've been through earthquakes in California. I went through 9-11 in New York, which was obviously not a natural disaster, but it was something that was, you know, I guess mind blowing and upset. It just everything, you know, it's I, I don't I never really talk about it. But at the same time, I'd never been through a tornado that I was aware of, Jeff. And on this past, I believe it was Wednesday night, I actually went through a tornado. So. I had plans with my daughter to go out to dinner. I was picking her up at about 5.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And uh, 
and it was raining out. You know, it wasn't like one of these where I looked outside and said, oh, yeah, this is uh, it's a death trap. If I go out, it was rain. It, it was normal. You know, you lived in South Florida for 40 years. You know, it's normal for us. It's rain is what we do. Uh, so I pick her up. We're like, where should we go out and eat? And we settled Jeff on a Thai restaurant that uh, I'm a big fan of locally. Some of the best Thai food I've was ever had. Was it better than the place in Alpharetta? It was not. I think that that is that might be my favorite of all time right there. Certainly the spiciest okay. of all times. Right. The one that was in Alpharetta was great. So we get into the restaurant. We're the only people dining in the restaurant. Uh, and we we grab a nice table near the window. We sit down, order a couple appetizers. They, they had these amazing chicken wings. I got to tell you about they were these jumbo chicken wings. They were cooked as perfect a chicken wing as you could have cooked, crispy, but not oily. And then they put this sweet and sour kind of glaze on them. Can, can I ask you a quick question with the Absolutely. chicken wings? Do you prefer yours uh, fried or grilled? Oh, fried. It, okay. there's not I like mine grilled. That's, that's I like a grilled. different level there. So yeah, it's, it, and it's two different things, but, uh, I, I like grilled chicken a lot, but I mean, uh, to me, a chicken wing, you got to fry that. I don't, and I don't like the, the chicken wings that are the, the, the extra joint, you know, whether yeah, it's got, no, no, I'm not a big fan of fuck that, you know, they should be split. They call them drumettes or wingettes, yeah. whatever. That's I how like, just to clarify, I like mine fried and then thrown on the grill, got oh, a little oh. char on them. That's nice. I, I, I agree. I, I, so some of the best chicken wings I've ever had aren't even fried. I, if you've ever had a smoked chicken wing, uh, that to me is just, I know you like a good smoke, but I didn't know you were referring to chicken wings. Well, <laughs> you know how did it is. I did, so. there? I did. I do. And, and I know what that references our call, uh, before we were on air today. Shout out to our friends that are going to be at CAC next week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and the fan festival and Lutz as well. So exactly. So getting back, so we're sitting there. We have demolished the wings. I had the Tom Kai Gai soup, which is uh, the coconut milk and chicken and mushrooms and galanga root, and uh, was delicious. And all of a sudden, we hear something, and it's almost like there's a vacuum pressed up against our ear. So we pull back the curtain, and we look outside, and holy shit, you could only see maybe a foot in front of you because the winds were whipping the rain so hard, visibility was completely lost. So I said, Zoe, I got to tell you, this, this doesn't look like a normal storm. I think we're, we may possibly be going through a tornado. Zoe getting a little fearful says, can we move? You know, and obviously the smart one in the family, can we move away from the window? Got, got her smarts from mom, apparently. Got her smarts from mom and mom's dad, actually, uh, because her my my wife's or ex-wife, whatever she is at this stage, her father, extremely intelligent. So, uh, so we each grab a plate and we go to a table in the middle of the dining room. And as soon as we put our food down, the table that we were sitting at, the window started popping out and breaking. Wow. So I, exactly. So th this was supposed to be a nice casual dinner and all of a sudden we're, we're fucking facing a tornado in an area that I don't know if it's ever even had a tornado before. Like this is not something we do in the suburbs of Philly. We don't have tornadoes up here. So, uh, so I, I tell her, I'm like, Zoe, get down and get underneath the table. So she gets underneath the table. Now there's no other diner in the restaurant, but there are five employees. They come out 
and they're all freaking out. Power's out at this point. We've lost power. It's dark. Uh, but it's only six, so it's not like it's, you know, pitch pitch black outside. There is a female uh, that comes out of the kitchen. She's now hysterical and in tears, and the male employees are trying to talk to her. I'm trying to tell everybody, and I don't know, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a dad, you know, or I was a manager. I don't know. But I'm trying to tell everything's going to be fine. We're going to be fine, you know, without having Remain any idea. Remain calm. Remain calm. We'll be fine. This, And, you know, the thing about tornadoes, and this was what I was trying to tell them, is this will be over in 10 minutes, too. That's the good news. It'll This will be over, and we can go back on with our life. So Zoe's underneath the table. I'm in the doorway looking out the window, and at that point, uh, all of the furniture that they had out front is gone. It's just fucking gone. A tree falls, hits my car, doesn't do a lot of damage. That falls, and, and, uh, and at that point, uh, Zoe is still underneath the table. All the windows and the window pane where we were sitting are now just sucked out of the fucking restaurant. So she's she doesn't even remember this because she was so scared. But I was trying to tell her, so we're going to be fine. The thing passes. Uh, Zoe says, uh, I think I want to go home. I'm like, I don't know if we can even go home. They're not even giving us a check. Like they realize, you know, I don't think the restaurant's even open at this point. Uh, they're not giving us a check. So we, we wait until it calms down a little bit. There's no sign of our tornado and we get in my car. Taking Zoe back to her house, my old former house, which is only a mile away, maybe a mile and a half max, four down power lines, countless trees, and pools of water on the road up to six feet. So we navigate back to the house. I get her back there. But now I'm concerned for Ozzy because I don't know. You know, in my head, the fucking windows have been blown out of my apartment. And Ozzy is underneath the bed, frightened somewhere. And so I, I then attempt to get Either home. Either that or directing traffic. I'm, I'm you know, one Ozzie of the two. Could too. He could yeah. have easily directed traffic. Luckily, the area that I was in, that I live in, wasn't hit as significant as uh, as the area that we were having dinner. But as it turns out, this was a major tornado with 130 mile an hour winds. Couple of side notes. Her high school severely damaged. She will not be going back to high school in the near future. They are, yeah. So her first day was fucking Wednesday, the day of the of the tornado. She had one day in high school off for pretty much the entire last year based out of COVID, obviously. And they're back to Zoom meetings now, and right? And now they're back. They're going back into Zoom meetings. So I, I feel for her. Any any idea uh, on the old scale what uh, cat it was, like cat two, cat three? Did you I hear? Just know, I know 130 mile an hour winds, which I think puts it on one of the higher ends, the higher spectrums. I don't understand how that could happen either here like you know i yeah it just there, it's not like there's a lot of land for this thing to uh to grow like you know this isn't like the plains or the uh you know somewhere out in oklahoma there's it's fucking building after building so i'm really surprised there are three elementary schools uh one of the elementary schools fort washington right across from the high school and this is the pattern is it literally came down this road they're closed indefinitely they had significant damage roof damage they won't be open up anytime soon so uh so that was bad and then the crazy part i watched a video yesterday a tanker uh a trucker was parked right in front of the gas station across from the thai restaurant 
the tornado overturned his the the truck and uh and i watched that video so this was a major, was he in it do you know he was in it yeah yeah he wow. was in it and it, you could find this and i'll find this and send it to you it was pretty incredible he didn't know what was happening but he thought it was a tornado and then of course he gets flipped over and it was a tornado so it was a big deal it was a uh, a big deal that i think we'll be living with for a little bit and there are people and the area that my house was in is a is an upper middle class area and on the facebook page there are people that are are homeless you know people that probably have uh, million dollar houses, half million dollar houses. They are they're asking for donations of places to stay, blankets, clothing, food, whatever it is. Uh, it, it's really just crazy how this impacted the neighborhood, Jeff. Well, and you know, I can recall when uh, one of my wife's favorite movies is Twister, and uh, one of the things they talk about in the movie Twister is just how incredibly random uh, tornadoes. Uh, can do damage. You literally can tear through an entire neighborhood and then you'll see like one or two houses where it didn't even touch them, you know? And uh, yeah, the mother nature. Wow. That's a, that's a powerful thing. We were extremely lucky uh, here where we are because uh, the bad part of uh, Ida went North of us. We got some pretty, pretty heavy rain uh, for about a good three or four hours. And we had some small branches down in the backyard and stuff like that, but all things uh, being equal compared to, uh, you know, uh, people in Louisiana and uh, Mississippi, uh, <laughs> like we really got off scot-free pretty much. And uh, I know that uh, my friends, uh, Jeff and David Steele and their sister, Judy, they are all down in that uh, general area. And I was reaching out to them, you know, how's it going and uh, texting them. And uh, they were hunkering down and, and wait for it to pass. And so uh, if you were in the path, uh, whether it's you know, down in Mississippi and Louisiana, all the way up to, you know, like, geez, I was texting with Brian last up where he is in the Northeast. And he's like, you know, parts of our town just completely flooded out, just like, you know, where you were, Barry. And so it managed to cut a pretty wide swath right through the, uh, through the entire country. And so, uh, yeah, mother nature, you never know. And as a matter of fact, Barry, your story, I'm going to save my drama because my drama is more on a, like a just stupid side. Uh, so I'll save my drama for the next episode. (laughs) So uh, I want to talk about something else, though, uh, Barry. I just had a chance uh, as of, I don't know if it was last night or the night before last. Barry, I finished the, uh, and I had texted you when I was in the middle of it, the Bruno San Martino book that was done by Sal Corrente. Yes. Man, I got to tell you, this is a really, really good book. Uh, I'm going to be honest, it's about 500 and maybe 20, 530 pages. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of photos, a lot of, uh, printouts of like cards that Bruno was on, uh, different things from Bruno's life. Uh, you know, stories about Bruno going back to Italy and seeing the town where he was born in and, uh, the town that he escaped the Nazis, uh, the, his mom, just an incredible, incredible situation. I mean, I kind of knew eh, sketchy things about it, but the fact that his mom, uh, you know, would go down into the town from this mountain. And it's like, you talk about a sheer face. I mean, it, it's not like a, you know, nice gradual slope. I mean, holy crap that his mom would go down from the top of the mountain, go into the village, into their house, take, you know, like just stuff like potatoes and and different things uh, to basically keep the family alive. And then she'd have to go back up the mountain. And apparently, at least one time, she was captured by the Nazis, put in the back of a truck, broke out through barbed wire, was shot, and the I don't know if it's the arm or the shoulder, but just an incredible story. 
And that's even before you get to his stinking wrestling career, which is which is pretty amazing in itself. But I cannot recommend this book enough. I'm going to post a picture of it in the group uh, uh, the day that this uh, this drops. Uh, but wow, if you get a chance, I if you're any kind of fan of Bruno San Martino, especially, but it, pro wrestling in general, and just an interesting life. Wow, what a friggin' life this guy had, Bear. Is this a recent release, Jeff? Uh, I, I think what happened was they had basically done the major body of the work many years ago, and then they kind of updated it uh, with some stuff that was going on, and then uh, one of the the last part of the book is tributes to Bruno from different friends of his. Uh, this was uh, one of them, I think, was from Dominic Danucci because Dominic Danucci and Bruno were uh, in real life best friends. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, many uh, you know Larry Zabisco uh, mentions uh, you know he he wrote some stuff in there. Uh, different guys, um, you know, I, I got to tell you, as I read the book, there was only a couple things that I really wished had been touched upon. Bruno very briefly talks about his son, uh, David. He talks about David wanting to get into wrestling, that Bruno was kind of trying to dissuade him, you know, telling him exactly how tough his life was going to be. And that Bruno, you know, that David wanted to make a go of it. And Bruno said, I finally just decided if this is what he wants, I'm going to let him do it. Uh, I know there are stories out there that Bruno and David had, uh, let's be uh, very kind here, a strained relationship at best. Uh, no details after that one uh, minor inclusion in the story about Bruno and his relationship with his oldest son. Uh, you know, apparently uh, the relationship he had with his tw- uh, younger twin boys was very good. But uh, he and David had a very strained relationship. Uh, I would have liked to have heard, uh, you know, more about uh the details while understanding that it's obviously something, you know, he goes, Sal goes in and say that, that Bruno was a very private man. So I can yeah. understand why it wasn't. I also, if, if I can it. share with this Jeff sure. too, an update with that. So, and it's a sad situation. And, and I will say too, when Bruno, so you met Sal Corrente, Jeff, I'm pretty sure Sal was the guy that ran that fan fest in Tampa in 2005. Sure. Wrestle reunion and Bruno was, I'll I'll say Bruno was the main attraction and just picture this, you know, you've got a, uh, an event where you've got dusty roads, you've got Harley race, Roddy Piper. Then you've got guys like Kevin Nash. Uh, I don't know if Scott Hall was there, but Kevin Nash, Goldberg, no, Goldberg wasn't there. Hacksaw, Jim Duggan. But you you had a couple of different generations of, and, you and know. And it was, uh, let me just include Kevin Von Erich, who at the time was not doing those things. So it was very rare sighting, you know, to have Kevin Von Erich there. Yeah, but when Bruno showed up. Oh, yeah. No, that was, was a completely different. Different yeah. level. Even with Harley Race and with Dusty there in Tampa. I mean, this is, yeah. Dusty is fucking Tampa. Bruno shows up. And it's a totally different ball game. And with that being said, could there have been a nicer guy? I remember I saw Bruno and I, I even I got excited and Bruno couldn't have been any more excited and happy. He was laughing, this big smile. He just came across as this wonderful, wonderful guy. Sadly, he and David never reconciled. And uh, I correct in saying that, that David did not come to the service for his dad. He didn't. And so I can tell you this, too. David has not spoken with any member of the family in close to 30 years, uh, including the twins. And I believe, Jeff, I believe one of the twins also passed away. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's the mother. It's Carol and one of the twins. But there is a foundation, I believe, based out of Pittsburgh. Correct. 
Yeah, it's he his legacy, whether you think he was a great professional wrestler is almost irrelevant in any situation, what he accomplished in his life and the human being he was. But the legacy he left because people in Pittsburgh, Jeff, you go to Pittsburgh, there's a sign and I drive past this every time I'm there. And it's uh, it's Oakland, the home of Bruno San Martino, Dan Marino, Andy Warhol. Yeah, which is so cool to see that. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's pretty incredible. So, yeah, I, I once again cannot recommend this book enough. It's a very compelling reading. Uh, and again, uh, I didn't even talk about the the different aspects of his career. Uh, I tell you what, you you definitely get a look at uh, the I'm just going to say the Machiavellian nature of wrestling promoters and how uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, no matter who you read about that is a wrestling promoter that you think is a good guy, uh, while the, the stories about guys that are good people that are wrestling promoters, there's a reason they're very few and far between. And uh, yeah, yeah um, Vince McMahon Sr., not this kindly old Irish gentleman <laughs> that he may have uh, been made to appear. Uh, and um, suffice to say that Bruno was not real happy with the direction that Vince Jr. Uh, took the company in, which I, that's, I'm not revealing any shocking details there but uh yeah a very interesting look at some of the uh the animus shall we say that bruno had for vince senior before they uh they finally kind of reconciled the relationship and you know i i gotta tell you one thing that you can say you know one of the complaints i always had about hulk hogan was i don't think that i, I never felt like hulk hogan did enough for people in the industry, he definitely took care of his friends you know guys like uh brutus beefcake and people like that but Bruno San Martino was a guy that really looked out for people that couldn't do anything for him. And I think that really speaks well to him. You know, there were guys that he took care of that he didn't need to. You know, J.J. Dillon has told, you know, the story about how Bruno had no reason to help him out. And uh, yeah. Bruno asked him about his payday for a certain event. And, uh, you know, he you know, he said, oh, I was a little disappointed in my payday. And, and Bruno was, don't say anything more. I'll take care of it. And, you know, then uh, a couple of days later. The uh, the people uh, that had the uh, the connections took care of JJ and and a, a lifelong friendship was born out of that. So yeah, finally let, let me just once again Bruno San Martino, uh, the biography by Sal Corrente, strong 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 recommendation from us here at uh, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry. So so Barry, the other day on my Twitter page at uh, Bowdrin Jeff, for those of you interested, I received a note from a young man. Barry, get a load of this. We have people that are interested in our stuff who live in Brazil. Wow. Yes. So this young man, his name is uh, Luis Fernando, uh, sent me a, uh, I asked him, I said, send me a, a letter and, and what you want to know. And he says, uh, Mr. Baldrin, my name is Luis Fernando. I'm from, uh, of course, he says Brazil. Uh, I'm very hard to get, I'm trying very hard to get into the wrestling industry from here. Yeah, but one day, I will be the greatest and best pro wrestler of all time. Lofty all right. standards, Luis. So, Luis is interested in what we have to say about a couple different things, and he wanted to break down by a couple different topics, guys in the wrestling industry, past, maybe present, that he could look at and watch to learn to help him become a, a pro wrestler. So, the first thing is, Barry, I want to get your uh, point of view on this. Tell me someone that you would... If Luis was sitting here with us at the breaking cafe with Bowdrin and baby, uh, Barry or baby, a uh, breakfast table. <laughs> I love it. 
Tell me who you would recommend uh, that Luis look into on the old YouTube, uh, maybe uh, Google, when it comes to these different aspects. Number one, storytelling. What wrestlers, in your opinion, should be studied on this aspect? So who is a great storyteller in the ring, Bear? Sure. Uh, Harley Race was a great storyteller in the ring. Maybe one of the best. Yes. Okay. Uh, Ric Flair. Ric Flair's a guy sure. that always told a great story, too. So next, Barry, ring psychology. What wrestlers, in your opinion, should be studied on this aspect? Killer Carl Cox, and I'll tell you why. And certainly it's there. there's no shortage of jokes about how much I love Cox. But at the same time— now Let's talk wrestling, too. We'll talk wrestling as well. But Killer Carl Cox is the kind of guy that could come out and— he would have the entire place close to riot before he even entered the ring. And that takes a true, uh, a true master of understanding the psychology of professional wrestling. When you can get an entire building ready to kill you and you haven't even put one foot in the ring yet. Yeah, that's, that's very good. Next, uh, Barry Matt structure or I'm sorry, match structure, Matt structure. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle. Nick Bockwinkle is a guy Yeah, that when I think of a guy having, quote unquote, perfect matches, Bockwinkle's name always comes up because he was Bockwinkle wasn't a guy that was spectacular, didn't do anything that you go, oh, my God, do you believe he just did it? Yet he could have a believable 60 minute Broadway. And the way the matches were always laid out always said to me that Bockwinkle knew what he was going to do before he even got in the ring. Okay, next, Mike Skill. I mean, that's uh, there's unlimited. You, superstar Billy Graham, Dusty Rhodes, Big Bad John. There's a name we don't mention, but Big Bad John, not a great professional wrestler, but a guy whose mic work back in the day actually got him a lot of jobs. I will also mention one that uh, our old friend, the professor, Pete Lederberg, has talked about the incredible talent of Jerry Lawler on a week-to-week uh, basis, putting absolutely. people in the Mid-South Coliseum. So, yeah, Jerry, the King Lawler out of Memphis is always a good one. Uh, Barry, character work. Character work, and we're talking about the development of a character? Yeah. I, I think, like, uh, the go-to greatest character of all time uh, you know, and I'm talking uh, relatively recently would be uh, The Undertaker. Uh, it was just sure. a, a guy that embodied. And, you know, the great thing about uh, Mark Callis as The Undertaker is there were so many different variations of The Undertaker. You know, you had uh, the dead man. You had the motorcycle guy. Yep. You know, uh, the, the American badass. You had all these different variations of the same character, which uh, it speaks of just how incredible Mark Callis was in that role, Barry. So uh, would that be a fair one? Oh, it's really fair, too. I think the important thing when it comes to character development and really understanding is look at a guy. Let's look at some guys that were wildly successful in the territory days uh, in their character roles. And we could look at let's look at the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher. Right. What was it? And this is what I would tell this young this young man from Brazil or Brazil is uh, what what made Abdullah and the Sheik so successful in the 1970s going into the 1980s, but especially the 1970s. And it was a devotion and a commitment to their character. I remember the first time I ever heard Abdul the Butcher speak, Jeff, and it was at some point in the yeah, 1990s. He's got that little voice. Yeah, and he was on, you know where he was? He was on the, uh, the All Japan Tour bus. And that was the first time I ever heard it. And I'm like, what the fuck? And, you know, and my point being is that 
a successful character like Abdullah or the Sheik really was successful because they lived and breathed that gimmick 24 hours a day and they never let us see anything otherwise. We didn't know, you know, Abdullah was Abdullah. The Sheik was the Sheik. We didn't know anything about their personal lives as they, as Bookman said in Seinfeld, we didn't want to know anything about their personal (laughs) lives. It's never a bad time to reference (laughs) Mr. Bookman on Seinfeld. Yes. (laughs) So uh, I will just mention, uh, as you were talking about that, uh, a guy who embodied his character and let's be honest, there's been a lot of great characters in professional wrestling. And you mentioned the Sheik Abdullah, both excellent choices. But a guy that was a great uh, character in a babyface role and in a heel role was Sergeant Slaughter. And that's a guy, uh, either way, a- as a baby or as a heel, that I think you could learn a lot by what he uh he made that character uh, as a bad guy. And then when he became the, you know, the all American, uh, you know, God bless the USA Sergeant Slaughter. And then when he went back and turned against the country and became the Iraqi sympathizer, you know, the guy was getting death threats for God's sakes. And, you know, so obviously that's, uh, that's taken the character to a different level. And uh, so uh, guys who uh, portrayed themselves as credible baby faces. Oh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot. So what's, when he and, and I'm asking you to interpret a guy from Brazil, Jeff. But what what <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by a credible baby face? Like well, let's, oh, okay. We we mentioned uh, on our show today Bruno San Martino. Bruno Bruno was uh, the epitome of what a great baby face was. But then, of course, the role of the baby face began to transition. Uh, you know, years later, we Bob Backlund became uh, the the all American babyface, and then later on, you had you know Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan led into guys like Steve Austin and the the anti hero, and then you got the Rock. We talked about guys whose mic skill you should watch. Watch the Rock. We forget. Yeah, we forgot sure. to mention Steve Austin and the Rock. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you know the way that the the uh, the babyface. Uh, it, I don't know. Is there really, a, you know, maybe John Cena is is the last definition of a true babyface? Because so much now of what you see in professional wrestling uh, is there's always that thin line between the the antihero that really came into vogue with Steve Austin uh, and somebody that's just, you know, uh, aw shucks babyface. Those guys really aren't out there anymore, Barry. No, they're not. And it's because, again, it's a different, as you said, it's a different world than, uh, you know, in the old days it was. It was black and white. And there really is no more black and white because the uh, and I think we 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 brought this up with Flair versus Steamboat, where it really started to backfire on Steamboat. And then Flair was considered the cooler. So people were actually cheering for him. So I guess we can go back 30 years to when that shift really started to take place. But look, even in the 1970s, and I can tell you Dave Flaherty has said numerous times that he was there the night that Jack Briscoe lost the title and he was jumping up and down and so excited. And I don't remember a lot of heel fans when I was a kid growing up, because even if you supported the heels, you were usually a little quiet about it. Probably didn't want to get your ass kicked. But uh, but how many good, credible baby faces at, in the last 20 or 30 years, guys that have been baby faces, but then never switched over to heel or, you know, they, they don't exist like that. Maybe steamboat, maybe steamboat's a good one to look at too. From and the 1970s. Certainly in the ring. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, we talk about guys that were presented as credible, uh, baby faces, Bruno and Backlund and Hogan and, yep. and Austin and rock and, you know, steamboat from an, in the ring and, 
you know, I, I was just listening to some of our older episodes of recently, Barry, and, you know, we talked about, and I've mentioned uh, ad nauseum here, that the three gold standards for me, as far as being able to convey in the ring, uh, the sympathetic baby face were uh, Steamboat, Barry Windham, and Ricky Morton. Now, of course, there's others. You know, Bob Backlund was great at uh, conveying uh, uh, sympathy. Uh, Jerry Lawler in Memphis did a great job of conveying sympathy. And, you know, the way that, uh, you know, Luis, if you ever get a chance to watch a Jerry Lawler match, the way that he would, you know, when he's doing his comeback, you know, like uh, – uh, guys would begin to like, like the Hulkster would Hulk up. Okay. Uh, Jerry Lawler had the, uh, the, the single strap and he would pull the strap down. And that was the sign that it was time for his baby face comeback. So lots of different guys that you could look at. So, uh, guys that presented themselves as credible heels, Barry. Guys that presented themselves as credible heels. The recently, uh, the, we recently lost the assassin. I think the assassin, did such a credible job as a heel because he was so sinister, but there's all different types. You had Ox Baker who wasn't a great wrestler, but a great character. He looked like a heel when he spoke, he bellowed, he sounded like a heel. Uh, the spoiler was another one. Any of these masked guys, the spoiler was another guy that just Very sinister, sinister, eerie. There was this creepy factor. Hey, I do want to throw this out, too, that if Luis, if there is uh, if you're looking at bringing in breaking kayfabe down to uh, Brazil, Brazil, and you want Jeff and I to come down, we would be more than happy to come down to Brazil. Uh, and do a live podcast down there and uh, maybe meet some lovely Brazilian women, Jeff. What do you think? Well, Mrs. Bowdrin may have a say in that. She has a uh, you know, All right. Uh, well, I would be happy to meet uh, and greet the girl from Ipanema. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Go. By the way, the first time we've ever referenced that song, the girl oh, from Ipanema, yeah, I think so. on this fine show. So, uh, Barry, <laughs> what do you think, Luis, uh, ask, what do you think makes a draw as a wrestler? What is what makes a draw as a wrestler? This is a simple one to give you an answer. However, you've got to figure out the formula. You just have to connect with the audience. Exactly. And, yeah. And it it doesn't there it, there are guys that could work for twenty years that somehow never figure out. And it's I don't think anybody can tell you how to do it. It's one of those things that you can do it. And I'll tell you what I was thinking about recently. There was a guy that was in the WWE for years. Uh, I should say three years, four years, five years. I don't know. NXT was the cruiserweight champion. Name was Tony Nice. Familiar with this gentleman at all? I don't recognize the name right off the top of my head. So physically good looking guy. Uh, built like an athlete, chiseled, I mean, not an ounce of fat on this guy, can do lucha and can do straight wrestling. There is no flaw in his game other than he's boring. He has no personality and no charisma. And they, he was released, I guess, over the last year with either, you know, they've done so many releases and I, I didn't even realize he had been released. And I've seen him multiple times on the indie circuit. He used to work with a group out of New Jersey. This guy, if he could find a personality and or charisma, I think this guy could be a main eventer almost anywhere. Cause I think in the ring, he can get it done, but he's also been in the business now for 10 to 15 years. And if, if you don't connect with the audience, if you don't find it, you're going to wind up having a career that goes, yeah, I was in the business for 30 years. And you know what? <laughs> it didn't, didn't matter. Cause I never connected with it. It doesn't, you do not have to be a great professional wrestler to connect with the audience at all. 
Yeah, there's a that, lot. You know, and, it. there's a lot of that out there. As you were sitting there talking about it, I was thinking about uh, guys that had that one, that one shining moment where everything just clicked, and the guy who came to mind was a guy that was in WCW. Uh, he was, uh, I want to say, fairly successful, maybe even a little more than that. I mean, he was recognized as a really good wrestler, and then he left the w- he left WCW, not necessarily of his own accord. Spent a very brief period of time in ECW, went to the WWF, where they really kind of weren't really finding a role for him. And then one day, I think it was in in your house, he gets called upon after defeating Jake Roberts to do a promo. And after, you know, Jake Roberts was very uh, out there with his uh, devotion to Christianity and stuff like that. And Steve Austin grabs the mic and says, Austin 316 just said, I just whooped your ass and boom, it was like that, Barry, all of a sudden the next night they went to the tapings and the Austin 316 signs were everywhere and a major character suddenly exploded onto the wrestling scene and that was a holy crap moment, Barry. Absolutely. And I remember watching that when it was taking place and it was a holy crap moment. And I don't think you could necessarily do that today because I think you would have church groups probably losing their mind. But you bring up another good point when you bring that up is that the catchphrase can go a long way. And uh, And it always has to be something that's, uh, you know, like uh, it it can't be something that someone writes down for you and says, here, this is a catchphrase. Can I give you a great example? Great example. This past week on either Dynamite or Rampage, and I don't know which one it was, and I think it was Rampage, Eddie Kingston came out and uh, he was going to be facing last night, we were recording on a Monday, at All Out, Miro, the former Rusev, and his gimmick is he's the redeemer. And Eddie Kingston came out and said, redeem these nuts. And once I was done laughing, I was like, that's actually a pretty good line. Well, guess guess what T-shirt Eddie Kingston was wearing last night? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so that's a big thing. If you can guess somehow who's make a lot of money off those T-shirts too. <laughs> they will. And then there were people. So the guy had said it either forty-eight or like ninety-six hours before the pay-per-view. There was probably a dozen signs in the audience last night. Redeemed these nuts. It already happened, which is great. All right. Uh... Two more questions from Luis. What makes a great match, in your opinion, Barry? Uh, just uh, the same thing, connecting with the audience. You must hold on to the audience. I, I have said this, Jeff, and we've said this actually numerous times. It doesn't have to be a great match. If the audience is into it, it automatically elevates it. I went to this indie show 2017 in Tampa that Jody Simon, Jody Malenko put on, and there wasn't one match what I would say was quote unquote good. Uh, There was just a lot of guys that were older that, you know, a bunch of guys in their late 50s or 60s that were were out there didn't matter. The fucking audience all had somebody had to do was to shake a fist at the crowd and the place lost its mind. And that elevated the crowd. You connect with the audience. You'll have a great match. Yeah. And the match does not have to be uh, half an hour of high spots. You know, you 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 can work, you know, work an arm, work a leg, uh, get the crowd to believe in what you're doing. Uh, You know, a, a guy that 
as Barry was going down some of his different choices, a guy that I thought of, if you want to look at a, a recent guy that I have said, Luis, on more than one occasion recently, that I really, I believe in his in-ring work. I believe in his charisma. I believe that just standing there, the guy looks like a freaking star. Watch Walter. Because yes. Walter, to me, comes across like he's he's a big deal. And he, it's not a guy that comes out there and does a lot of promo work. Uh, he works very stiff in the ring. Uh, if you if you're facing Walter, you know you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna be turned into you know chopped liver your chest usually. But he uh, he brings out greatness out of his opponent. I think you know, and that's a very rare. And, and I don't mean like he's selling you know like the way Ricky Steamboat does or that Ricky Morton or Barry Windham did. You know he has such a, a an aura about him. And maybe that's something that that's it also, that right. has to come out of you. You have to have that aura of being a, just somebody that people number one, want to see that aura of being like a champion and uh, whatever that is, Walter has that. And that's a guy that I would certainly recommend that you uh, check out. Last question from Luis, what companies uh, and or company runs, would you recommend the most? Uh, I, I think a lot of it depends on what kind of a wrestler Luis wants to be. Sure. You know, you could, right. So you could say, you know, if you're looking for success, uh, maybe that early WWF stuff, not that I'm a fan, but at the same time, it's hard to dispute, you know, when Hulk Hogan joined and they went on that run, that was really successful. Uh, WCW had some great stuff. Look at ROH from 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, ROH, Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness. Uh, that to me was, you know, that's professional wrestling right there. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, again, depending on what you're looking for, uh, W the WWF, uh, stuff that's out there on YouTube from the seventies, sure. a completely different product than it was presented like five years after that. But at that point, that was very old school wrestling. Uh, the match that we talked about on our show today, the AWA match from uh, 72 or 73, shows you a different way that wrestling was presented, you know, 50 years ago, uh, all the way up to the the Walter match uh, that we just reviewed a couple of episodes ago. Uh, Memphis from uh, uh, the early part of the 80s was really, really effective uh, the way they presented their prob uh, their their product, uh, the NWA stuff from like uh, 1986. You know, like I was watching some of that stuff recently. Uh, Rock and Roll Express just on fire. We talked about that match last week, Barry against the Andersons. So Jeff, can I can I give you a great example of sure. a guy that that Luis should have his eye on immediately? That's current, Ilya Dragunov. Yes, and and that was the guy that faced Walter that we talked yes, about. Yes, beaten. What he does in the ring is incredible, but when you watch his selling, he, you know, his crying, all of it, this guy, this guy gets it. And as I'm watching him in some of his facial expressions, a tad over exaggerated at times, but at the same time, you can clearly see this guy fucking gets it. And they would not have put that title on him if they didn't think he got it either. He yeah. gets it. This is a guy I would be studying. And uh, let me just uh, mention a couple of last things, uh, because otherwise I'll be getting a nasty uh, message from Kevin Orcutt. Uh, Buddy Rose in Portland <laughs> in the early 80s. That stuff is out there on YouTube, yes. Luis. And uh, his work as a heel was incredible. He was really effective. Barry, we haven't even brought up Japan. Uh, all Japan, uh, middle part of the 80s. 
Uh, and then uh, into the 90s, what we have called the King's Road style that uh, guys like uh, Mitsuharu Masawa and Toshiaki Kawada, Kenta Kobashi, uh, along with guys like Stan Hansen, Terry Gordy, Dr. Death, that stuff is exceptional. Uh, New Japan from the latter part of the 80s. Uh, was really good. Uh, New Japan from a couple years ago when Okada and Kenny Omega were over there uh, and uh, uh, Naito, that's really good stuff. They have some interesting characters in New Japan a few years back uh, and in uh, the Japanese women. Oh, uh, now, now the Japanese women from about 1984 through about 1993 were just off the charts. And hold on, wait a second. Are you listening, Barry? Are you listening? Yeah, Greg Gagne is going to get upset if I don't mention uh, his promotion, Kingdom. So Kingdom, uh, in the last few years in uh, Japan, is a women's promotion that is also uh, worth your attention and time. We reviewed one of their matches within the last uh, month or so. Uh, and quite frankly, Barry, I'm sorry. I don't even remember the name of the ladies that we reviewed. But uh, if you go back into our old podcast, you know, maybe a great place to learn about pro wrestling, Barry, is Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, because, you know, we have over 200 episodes now where we've reviewed at least one match a week, Barry, and uh, lots of stuff that we've recommended uh, that we uh, think that you should check out. Luis, I really appreciate your questions. Very good questions, Barry, all the way down from Brazil. Yeah, and I, I, I really want to push hard for this Breaking Kayfabe appearance in Rio de Janeiro. So, I, Luis, we're counting on Bowman. you to make I'm, this happen, buddy. Yes, I'm sure she'll, uh, she'll acquiesce to that, uh, that hope. So, Barry, as we wrap up and begin to go for the old you home, uh, last thought before we do? Yeah, you know what? I, I love having George on as a guest, too. You and I were talking about this off air, and there's such a— Wait a deep... minute. You mean you and I talk off air? <sighs> Apparently. That's hard we, to believe. We talk about college degrees and junior high degrees and occasionally high Seminole school. Seminole Middle School in Plantation, Florida. I was a proud <laughs> graduate. There you go. But I love having George on as a guest. He is uh, His passion— uh, his knowledge and intelligence when it comes to the AWA is unmatched. And every time he talks, it's George almost has a little bit of the roop in him where you can ask him a question and just sit back, have a cocktail. Cause you know, he'll spend the next 20 minutes answering. And that's what we like. I mean, as we're having these conversations, but great guest, this was a fun episode, uh, as always, Jeff. Yeah. And as I, uh, I texted Barry in the middle of, uh, George's, uh, uh, historical lesson to all of us. I said, George, or I said, Barry, George is like a wind up doll. You just wind him up and let him go. And he said, uh, yeah, George is doing the heavy lifting. Uh, so in that segment, we appreciate George doing the heavy lifting. So on behalf of my, uh, my co-host Barry Rose and our producer, sweet Lou Kippelman, looking forward to that trip out to Vegas and the CAC where perhaps he'll be joined by some other nefarious types. I'm talking to you, Vandal Drummond. Uh, we will wish him well on that trip. And until we talk to you next week, take it home. Please.